Good morning. What a beautiful morning it is. Or at least I hope it still is. It was when I came to church this morning. It was a beautiful morning. The birds were singing. Wasn't too hot yet. Just a great, great day that God has blessed us with. And a day where we are free from fear of persecution and instant suffering just for being here and talking about God's word. And I want to thank you for being here and for being excited to share in God's word with the family here, just ready to study what he has done and what he has said for us. Over the last I don't know, six months or so, I've been doing a lot of reading in the book of Acts. Uh, I think for far too long in my Christian walk, I sort of knew the basic facts and the main characters of Acts, maybe some of the big moments that happened throughout the book. And that was kind of where my in-depth knowledge stopped. I, I knew the basic gist of the book. And so on my reread through of Acts, a lot of the stories and sermons and people you meet along the way of this story of the early church, they've been really gripping to me. Because you see the church growing like wildfire against so much opposition. Because the entire book of Acts is really a compelling insight into the question Can the church be defeated by the world? Can the church be defeated by its enemies? And over and over again, as Acts goes through, you see the opposition getting stronger and stronger. And you see the church surviving and thriving and growing despite its opposition. But none of the stories that I have read through in Acts so far have gripped me as much as the one that we're going to talk about today. If you want to turn to Acts 7, that's where we're going to be spending most of the time in this lesson with the story of Stephen. Because we'll see, Stephen had a lot to say about who God's people are, what they will go through, and what will be their ultimate result. And it'll be a great reminder as we go through this lesson of the answer to the question, can the church be defeated by its enemies? Because we all know the answer is no, the church can't be defeated. But I think this lesson will uh, firm that up in our minds. I should stop talking because the story of Stephen is really long. And because of that, I already don't have time to read everything that I want to read. So we'll have to skip around some. And I hate doing that. So I'll say it now and I'll probably say it again some point in this lesson. Please take the time to read Acts 6 and 7 this week. It does not take that much of your time. It's just two chapters But I think if you get to read the whole story and see the context of it all and see how powerful these chapters really are, it will be a great boost to your faith. 
Uh, I know it has been to mine this week. So if you want to turn to Acts 7, that's where we'll start. But before we get into the story, I'm going to set the stage just a little bit. So here in Acts 6, we have seen nothing but the church growing exponentially. The church is growing like wildfire so far in the book of Acts, day by day. And because of that, we've seen opposition grow to the church, really from the very beginning. In uh, in Acts 4... Peter and John are threatened by the Sanhedrin council. And did that deter the church? No. They pray for boldness and the church grew even more. In Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they get out of line. They lie to the apostles. They're trying to tear the church apart from the inside. And they're killed by God. Did that deter the church? Well, it says that some people were afraid. A lot of people were afraid. But then just two verses later, the church was growing more than it ever had before. The apostles are beaten up in Acts 5 and they keep teaching. Even as the persecution and the trouble sort of ramps up as it does over and over. And as it does in this chapters that we'll read today... The church and God's will are rolling right over the enemies of the world. The church is winning every single battle. And then the Bible introduces us to a man named Stephen. It says Stephen was a good man. He was well respected. He was one of the seven chosen as the sort of uh, proto-deacons of Acts 6. He was full of the spirit and full of wisdom, full of grace and power. Those are some pretty good descriptions of his character. But Stephen wasn't passive with these things. Stephen didn't just sort of sit on those qualities. In the beginning of this story, Stephen in in, uh, chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, Stephen is out performing great miracles and he's teaching the people the gospel. And just like the pattern that we've seen over and over again in Acts, and just like we've already talked about this morning, when people do great things in the name of Jesus, opposition is going to grow. Opposition is going to come up to face them. And Stephen is no different. It says that men from multiple different synagogues, they come to him and they try to argue with them and disprove the gospel But in chapter 6, verse 10, it says that Stephen had too much wisdom. He had too much of the Spirit. They couldn't argue with him. He was winning every single argument, proving his point from the Word of God. And so just like the world did to Jesus, they make up accusations against Stephen. In chapter 6, verse 11, they said uh, he spoke blasphemies against God and against Moses. And then they bring him to trial and they bring up false witnesses. And in chapter 6, verse 13, they say, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, which is the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. He speaks against the law and the temple saying Jesus will destroy it. Which, if you remember, is exactly what the world accused. Accused Jesus of in his trial, almost word for word. And so 
with Stephen on trial, chapter 7 opens with the high priest offering Stephen a chance to defend himself against these accusations against blasphemy, against Moses, the law, and the temple. And if you were Stephen, what would you do here? I don't want to presume for everyone here, but if I'm Stephen and the high priest says, all right, defend yourself, here's your chance. I'm saying, no, I didn't say any of that. You got to believe me. I'm not speaking blasphemy. This is, this is crazy. That's not what Stephen does. In fact, Stephen doesn't talk about himself at all. In this entire chapter, you're never going to see Stephen say, well, actually, this is what I really said. None of that happens. Stephen doesn't offer a defense of himself. What Stephen does is he goes through the scriptures almost point for point. He says, oh, you say I'm speaking blasphemy against Moses, against the law, against the temple. Stephen's sermon talks about the law, Moses, and the temple. He goes through everything point for point, and he says, no, I'm not speaking blasphemy. You have no idea what these passages are even talking about. In a way, Stephen kind of doubles down. He says, no, this is what the word of God says, and you have misunderstood it. This is what God was really pointing to all along. And let's just get into some of this sermon here because this is really where we learn a lot of who Stephen is and the way the Spirit guided him to view who God's people are and how persecution and rejection factor into that. And let's just start by reading sort of his introduction. It's it's in Acts chapter 2, or Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 7, if you want to read that with me. Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 7. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And if you want to skip down, let's pick up uh, verse 9 and 10 as well. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over his household. And so here, Stephen starts by going back all the way to the beginning of the history of the Jewish people. He starts all the way back with Abraham and the patriarchs. But I think it's very helpful to remember because I think it's really easy to get distracted in Stephen's sermon and just view it as like he's given the people a history lesson. 
Like he's just telling them what's happened and that's it. That's not the point of what Stephen's doing. This is not a Jewish history 101 class. That's not Stephen's point. So I think it's helpful for us to remember that Stephen is emphasizing uh, certain things. He has a main message. So let's just look for a second at what Stephen emphasizes here in these first few ver- verses. So in verse 3, he says, The origin of the Jewish people, the start of this nation, what did Abraham have to do? He had to separate himself from his homeland and from his physical family. That the beginning of God's people had to start with a separation from what is physically important. The land, the people, everything that you knew. That's how God's people start, is this sort of separation. And it's hammered again on in verse uh, 4 and 5. Abraham did not have a physical people. And in verse 6, his offspring would be sojourners and suffer themselves. They would actually have to suffer persecution at the hands of foreigners. But God says, I'm going to save them and I'm going to establish justice for them. So at the very beginning of God's people, we see God's people have to suffer sometimes. God's people have to be persecuted sometimes. God's people have to leave their physical situation sometimes. And they have to look past that for what God has called them to. And then with Joseph, it says Joseph is rejected by his own people. Because you would think, all right, so we have left Mesopotamia. We've left all that behind. Those are sort of the world, as we would say. They're the people outside God's people. So now the family is just pared down to just who are supposed to be the people of God. And that word supposed to is a really big deal. Because Joseph was rejected by people who were supposed to be the people of God. They were Israelites. They were the family of Abraham in the physical lineage. And yet they rejected Joseph. They rejected the dreams that God gave him. They persecuted him and they shipped him off. They persecuted him and said, we don't want to have to deal with you. Get out. The people of God, the people who were supposed to be God's people, the physical lineage of Abraham, they rejected Joseph and he suffered on their behalf. Stephen's pointing out in this early part of his sermon, God's people are founded on suffering and rejection. That has been there since the beginning of God's people. And if you notice in his sermon, he's going to bring out, and that continues throughout the rest of the story. This is how God's people started, with leaving your physical family, with being rejected, and by suffering persecution. That's the sort of bedrock that a lot of this is built on. Um, So let's get back into the sermon where Stephen really gets to his main point, I'd say. It's about Moses. Because if you remember, the first charge that they gave Stephen is he blasphemed against God and Moses. And so Stephen says, you want to talk about Moses? 
Let's go through the story of Moses. So uh, let's pick back up in Acts chapter 7 and we'll start uh, in verse uh, 17. Acts chapter 7, verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At the time that Moses was born, he was beautiful in God's sight. Skip down to verse 22. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and, trying to, and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a judge and a ruler over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Stephen says God sent Moses as a sort of uh, salvation bringing figure to the people of Israel. He, God sent Moses to say, all right, it's time to get out of slavery. Let's get up and go. And the people rejected him. His own people rejected him. And so verse 25 says they rejected God's salvation that was going to be given through Moses. In other words, Israel, the people of God, the people who are supposed to be the people of God, they chose slavery over God's plan of salvation. And Moses was rejected and sent away from the people. But of course, that's not the end of the story of Moses. So let's pick back up in verse uh, 34. This is right in the middle of God speaking to Moses at the burning bush. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. And this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him about Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us, but our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. 
So now Stephen's given us the rest of the story of Moses, the Exodus, Sinai. He kind of ties it all up in one little short section. And again, we ask why. What is Stephen trying to emphasize? And again, we see in verses uh, 34 and 35, emphasizing that even though Israel suffered persecution by the hands of the Egyptians, just like God had told Abraham they would, God did not abandon them. God heard their cries and worked salvation and justice for them, even though they had rejected Moses already. Even though they had already rejected God's plan, God sends Moses right back to the people. And then God led Israel out of slavery through Moses. But that's not the end of the story. Because the people rebel over and over and over again. Stephen mentions the wilderness wanderings in verse 38, saying, Our fathers refused to obey him, and they thrust Moses aside. They rejected him again. In verse 39, again, rejecting God's appointed ruler in favor of slavery. Despite the great signs and the oracles that God gave to Moses, despite the deliverance that God had already brought through Moses, God had already saved the people from slavery through Moses. And they said, eh, not really interested. And they rejected him again. And they rejected God's plan of salvation again. And that's the key to this that Stephen points out. That the ultimate result of the people rejecting Moses wasn't really that they rejected Moses. The ultimate point of the people rejecting Moses was that they rejected God. Because the people say they're rejecting Moses. They say, I don't know what's happened to Moses. I don't know what's become of him. And they don't turn to God after that. They say, let's make a calf. Let's make gods and let's worship them. That the point of them rejecting Moses wasn't anything about Moses himself. It's they rejected God. They rejected the plan of salvation he had. They rejected the people of God and the ones that were sent to tell them about the truth. That's who the people rejected. And Stephen kind of cuts to the chase in verses that we didn't read right after this. Stephen kind of skips ahead in the story and he says, and that was the story for the rest of the people all the way up until they were sent into exile. That over and over again throughout the entire Old Testament story, God sends people to help deliver Israel, to save them, to point them to God and say, look, God's willing to save you. And they say, no, I'll take the slavery. Sign me up for slavery. Over and over again, the people rejected God to do what they wanted to do. And they rejected God's people. And Stephen hints at something more in verse 37 where Stephen quotes the verse that says, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. In other words, God told Moses, this is going to happen again. There will be another prophet from the people sent to save the people. And the implication is he will be rejected too. 
And of course, we know the end of that story, right? We know when Stephen says, and by the way, God's going to send another prophet like Moses. We already know who that is. We know that it's Jesus. And I have to think, I don't know this for sure, so take this with a grain of salt. But I have to think that when the Sanhedrin council's listening to Stephen say this, like, you know they know who he's talking about, right? When the Sanhedrin council hears Stephen say, oh, and by the way, Remember this for later. God says he's going to send another prophet like Moses. You know that they know he's talking about Jesus. And you know that they know that they already rejected Jesus. That they already killed Jesus. That Stephen is saying, Jesus was sent to save you. Jesus was sent to deliver you. He said, I'll take the sin. I'll take that instead. And you killed him and you rejected him. And if that wasn't already clear enough by this point in the lesson, let's just go on and skip to Stephen's end. If you want to read with me, it's in um, chapter 7, verses uh, 51 through 53. Stephen really pounds it home here. He says, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, Stephen says, as everything we just talked about did, so do you. Which of the, father, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have betrayed and murdered you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So you see where Stephen's going with this? Stephen says, God's been telling you he's sending people to save you. And God's been telling you, I'm going to send a Messiah. And along the way, everyone who preached God's message, you rejected, you killed them, you persecuted them, you sent them out from the people. All the way up until... God sent his son. He sent Jesus, the righteous one. And just like your fathers killed all the prophets, you rejected him and you killed the son of God. Wow. That's where all this has been going. Where Stephen says, you telling me I've blasphemed God? You did. You killed him. How do you think that the Sanhedrin council would react to that? Let's forget that you know the end of the story for a second. Because I think a lot of us, we've heard this. We know that how it's going to end. Put that outside of your head for a second. If you're just picturing this based off of what we know from Acts up to this point, what have we seen? Because we've kind of seen two kinds of reactions in Acts. So in Acts 4, right, Peter and John are rejected by the same council that Stephen's before here. And so the council threatens them and says, don't do that anymore. Don't preach about God anymore. And they let him go. In Acts 5, the same council arrests the apostles and wanted to kill them. 
but cooler heads prevailed. And the council just beat up the apostles and said, don't do that. Don't preach God anymore. Don't preach about Jesus and send them on their way. So maybe one option, even though we've seen the opposition ramp up so far, is that they're going to get really mad at Stephen. They're going to beat him up and they're going to send him on his way. Maybe that's what's going to happen. That's one option from what we've seen in Acts so far. But the other option is something more similar to what we've seen in Acts 2. Because if you remember, at the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, Peter looks at the crowd of Jews, he looks at the people, and he says, God made Jesus Lord and Christ, the ruler and Messiah, and you rejected him, and you crucified him. Which is really similar to what Stephen says here. Peter looked at the people and said, you have rejected the Messiah and you killed him. And you remember in Acts 2, it says the people heard the message of Peter and they were cut to the heart. And they said, what do we do now? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. So that's the other option. Maybe the Sanhedrin council, they're going to hear what Stephen has to say and they're going to be cut to the heart by the gospel. And it's going to reveal a repentant sort of heart. And they're going to hear what he has to say. So let's read the next few verses here. uh, Verses uh, 54 through 58. Because if either way in those scenarios, the gospel wins. Either way... It either wins with penitent hearts or other times it wins with getting beat up and emboldened. But either way, the gospel wins. So let's read uh, chapter 7, verses 54 through 58. Now, when the council heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. And then they threw him out of the city and stoned Stephen. This is one of those places that I think our translations serve us a great disservice. Because my Bible and a lot of other Bibles, I would say most of the Bibles here, probably say in chapter 7, verse 54, that when the council heard these things, that they were enraged. I got really mad. That's not fully the idea that's in the past here. Now, I'm not a Greek expert. You can ask, I don't know, I don't know one of the Copelands or something. You can ask them later to make sure. But for my little bit, I have read that the phrase cut to the heart used in Acts 2 is a very similar phrase to the phrase used right here in Acts 7. And you say, whoa, how is that possible? Because obviously those two things end up very different ways. But I would posit to you, both groups of people were cut to the heart. In Acts 2, when Peter looked at the people and said, you have crucified the Son of God, you've crucified the Lord Jesus, they were cut to the heart. And it revealed one that was broken and ready to give themselves to God. And they were ready to repent 
and to be baptized. Stephen preaches the same gospel to the council. And they were cut to the heart by the same gospel. But the sword of the word revealed a very different heart. It didn't reveal a heart ready to repent. It didn't reveal a heart ready to give themselves to God. It revealed a heart of stone. It revealed a hard heart. So much so that they stopped their ears. They can't even hear it anymore. Both groups were cut to the heart. But the heart of the council was revealed to be evil, malicious, and angry. And they kill Stephen. Stephen becomes an example of the very persecution and rejection from the people that he preached about. He's just another name in the long list of the persecuted and the martyred. So what can we learn from Stephen in his amazing story? And the first one, I'm going to warn you, it might not be something you want to hear. But it's something you need to hear. God's people suffer rejection and persecution. Stephen goes all the way to the beginning of God's people, Israel, and he says, Abraham had to leave his family and everything he knows. Joseph was betrayed and persecuted by his own brothers. Moses was rejected more times than you could possibly count. And why? Because people reject God. And when people reject God, they reject his word and they reject his people. Over and over again throughout the scriptures, God's people are rejected. They're rejected by their own families. They're rejected by their friends. They're rejected by the people that live in the same town as them. And they suffer persecution. And that's exactly what Jesus told us was going to happen in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 12, where he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets and in other places Jesus will say, and so they persecuted me, so they will persecute you. Those that are blessed in Matthew 5 here are those who suffer for righteousness. Not suffering for the dumb arguments I want to make. Not suffering for being antagonistic, awful people. That's not what they suffer for. They don't suffer for being hard-headed and hard to get along with. They suffer for God. And they suffer for righteousness' sake. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be beaten and you're going to be stoned. You don't have to be stoned to be a Christian. It's not what I'm saying. But God says, if you're doing what I say, if you're telling people about the gospel the way you should be, people are going to think you're crazy. They're going to think you're foolish. They're going to reject you. And they're going to persecute you. And that, unfortunately, brothers and sisters, is a guarantee. That if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're going to meet persecution. It may not look like what Stephen goes up against. In fact, I hope and pray that none of us ever have to go through what Stephen went through. But I can guarantee you, you will have 
to fight your own persecution and your own battles. That is 100%. You're going to face rejection, but it's okay because the other point of Stephen's sermon is that God delivers his people always. Full stop, God delivers his people. Because verse 9 and 10, God was with Joseph despite what his brothers did to him and rescued him all out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh who made him ruler over Egypt and all his household. The people of Israel were brought out of slavery in Egypt and given the land God promised to Abraham. Over and over throughout the book of the law, God showed that he was with Moses and that's the story of Stephen himself. Stephen is a great man. He did miracles. He had the spirit in him. He was full of grace and power. He taught the gospel, but he was rejected. He was persecuted. He was stoned. He was killed for doing what he needed to be doing. And yet, God delivered him. And you say, whoa, Gavin, you must have read a different end of the story than I did. Because when I read the end of Stephen's story, I did not see Stephen getting delivered. In case you didn't know, he died. And that's true. But I don't think it's coincidence that in the passage that emphasizes over and over again, yes, God's people will be rejected and yes, they will suffer, but God's going to deliver them. I don't think it's coincidence that in uh, chapter 7, verse 56, one of the last things we see Stephen say is, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And then in chapter 7, verse 59, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The end of Stephen's story is deliverance. Do you believe that? The end of Stephen's story, despite death itself, God receives Stephen. And Stephen receives the ultimate deliverance, God saving his people. I don't know whether your deliverance is going to come in this life or not. I don't know that. Sorry to say, but I wish I did. I can't guarantee you that God is going to deliver you directly from every single bit of persecution and opposition. I can't guarantee you that God is going to bring you up and show your enemies, how you were all wrong. This person's my person. Uh, this guy's part of God's people. I can't guarantee you that. But I can guarantee you something a lot better. That no matter what pain or suffering, or rejection, or trials, any of it, no matter what you face in this life, God will deliver you in the life to come. That is a promise and a guarantee. You can stamp that with 100% approval. That's what everything we do here is built on, is that hope that we have something better coming no matter what happens here. That's the story of Acts. That's how the church survives no matter the enemies. Because they all know there's something better. That's the story of Moses. He rejected all the things in front of him in Egypt and he sought God's blessing. That's the story of Stephen and that can be your story. I want it to be your story. 
And so this comes the part of the lesson where we normally offer the invitation. And I just ask, let's plug in to the salvation that God offers. Because God's there. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to abandon you. All you have to do is follow him. And you can have that hope for deliverance that all of these great men had. You can have the hope for deliverance that Stephen had. And you can know God has me no matter what happens. So if you're not a Christian, you can repent and be baptized today. You can join into that salvation. Accept God's plan. But if you have been a Christian, you got lost somewhere along the way, you got distracted by the temptations and the persecutions of the world, come back. Let's talk about it. I'd be happy to pray for you. I know the elders here would be happy to pray for you. There are so many people here that would be happy to pray with you and for you. So whatever your need, please feel free to come to the front as we stand and sing.